I'm biased with this, but I do have insight. (laughs) We have the best worship team ever. Um, We really really do. Um, I, I have the privilege of getting to witness the heart of each one of these people on this team. Times where... It was just a few weeks ago, one of, one of the team members, uh, their mom had a heart attack, and they were supposed to be leading, and they called me up and said, hey, I don't think I'll be able to make rehearsal tonight, but they said, but I'm going to be there Sunday, because God is going to be praised nonetheless. That's the heart of so many people on our worship team. And I love that that's the heart of Valley Community Church as well. So it's, it's a whatever-it-takes attitude. Whatever-it-takes attitude because God will be praised nonetheless. Amen? Um, so in case you were coming to hear Pastor Gary today, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint, um, but you get me. <laughs> uh, Pastor Gary and Terry. <laughs> See, I, I do that on purpose, you know. I, I, I make sure Carolyn knows, hey, make sure to clap at this point when I say this. So, just joking. <laughs> now, Pastor Gary and Terry are taking some time off, and they're heading out uh, to the East Coast uh, to be with some friends. And it's funny because, you know, they're talking about, yeah, we're going to go take some vacation, but we're going to go see this person, and we're going to go meet with this person, have dinner with this person, and connect with these people. And I'm like, Vacation? What are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> but I guess that's part of their lives, and they're uh, always ready to accept that. So ministry never stops, um, especially when you value uh, his kingdom coming and his will be being done on earth. Amen? Um, hey, if you've got your Bibles, uh, open up to Psalm 25 today. Psalm 25. And uh, this is a peculiar place to start. It'll make sense when we get into everything today. But um, what I want to talk to you about today is transformation. Okay, transformation, uh, a transformational culture. Okay, transformational culture and how God uses the method of cause and effect to create momentum for transformation. Psalm 25, are you there? One person. All right, that's all I need. Very good. All right, Psalm 25, we're going to pick it up in verses 12 through 13, and it says this. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. I've been reading the Passion Translation recently, and it's just awakened some things in me, and I love how the scripture says it in the Passion Translation. Who are they that live in the holy fear of Yahweh? You will show them the right path to take. Then prosperity and favor will be their portion, and their descendants will inherit the earth. I just want to bring to our attention that what, what starts in an individual was never meant to just stay or even to die with the individual. It's always for the purpose of momentum, of creating a pathway for inheritance, creating a pathway for the next generation, okay? Um, And specifically what I want to talk about today is the transformation of society, cities, 
cultures, regions, nations, governments. You know, we're, we're very familiar with the passage of, you know, Jesus being the good shepherd and how he leaves the, 90, the 99 to go after the one. Let me just stop right there. Aren't you so thankful, so grateful that God, Emmanuel, God with us, in a crowded room, he sees you. Man, I just love the heart of God in that way. He leaves the 99, he goes after the one. In a crowded room, he sees your face and he knows your name. I love that. It's true that God goes after the individual, but it's equally true that God's heart is for cities, that God's heart is for society, for nations, okay? I mean, if you think about Jonah, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, right? He didn't just send Jonah to the king, or he didn't just send Jonah to a government official or a representative of the people. Jonah went throughout the entire city for three days preaching that God was going to destroy the city. Okay, likewise, in Jesus' time, when he's doing his ministry around the earth, uh, there were three cities that Jesus rebuked, okay? It was Bethsaida. You find this in Matthew 11, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, okay? Because Jesus was performing miracles, doing supernatural things, demonstrating the love and power of God, and these cities had unbelief. They didn't believe. Now, I'm using two examples here. I'm not, I'm not bringing my, the attention to... Um, to judgment or rebuke or anything like that. I'm simply just trying to draw our attention to the fact that God loves cities. His heart is for cities. There's another interesting scripture that I came across in Revelation 21. I never really noticed this before. I've read it before, but, you know, that's the living word, right? You always notice new things. Um, but in Revelation 21, John is experiencing all these prophetic and heavily, heavenly images. And anyhow, Revelation 21 talks about the new Jerusalem. Okay, the New Jerusalem, uh, he sees this New Jerusalem coming down, descending out of heaven, and it's in the shape of a cube. So he's seeing this image, and it's interesting because it says it's called the New Jerusalem, that great city, but it's also described, one of the angels describes it as the bride of the Lamb. The bride of the lamb. This cube. You know, as far as I can recollect, there's only one other place in scripture where a cube is described, and that's in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of meeting with Moses, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And you know, for, for all the mathematicians out there, a cube is perfection. It's, it's perfect square. It's order. And as much as I don't know about Revelation, as much as it confuses me, even though I love reading it, I started pondering about that, and it's this idea that what John saw descending was divine order, but this divine order was always connected to the presence, and it spoke to me just that divine order always comes out of divine romance. That's God's passion for cities, for society. Okay, because on society, on cultures, on nations and cities, you fill in the blank, there is a divine purpose on each one of them. Something that cannot be achieved or even represented by an individual, and let me say, even by one church. 
People groups and communities have an anointing and a divine purpose specifically designed by God himself. And that's why, here's why cities, cultures, and society must matter to each and every one of us. Simply put, it's because it matters to Jesus. Matters to Jesus. One of, one of the... One of the greatest embarrassments to the gospel is when believers is when believers hope that Jesus comes back today. If Jesus comes back today, that leaves so many people out of his plan of redemption. It's God's heart, as it says in the scriptures, it's God's heart that none perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, listen. Jesus is not coming back on a rescue mission to save his bride from the ills of society or from the evil of today. Amen. Right? We have to live with a conviction knowing that the one whom we worship, that he has all the answers to all the problems, all the dilemmas that society faces today that our nation faces today, that the world faces today. So essentially, that's kind of the the pathway we're going to take today, talking about transformation. How do we partner with the King of Kings to transform society, transform our cities? And I want to take a look at, if you want to open your Bibles up to 1 Kings chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verses 29 through 34. Um, as you're turning there, I want to take a look at two, two men in the Bible, uh, King David and King Solomon. King David and King Solomon, uh, a familiar duo to many of us. Um, and I want to show some particular things that they were very intentional with in their reign as kings over Israel um, and how they created momentum for an entire nation, but not just for their nation. It influenced other nations. Okay? Be there, First Kings chapter 4. It says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Israelite and Haman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And listen to this. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I love how in the beginning of this it says that God gave him wisdom and understanding, but also largeness of heart. How many of you know that what God does in you doesn't just stay with you? Can I pray that over us today, that as, as the Lord speaks to us, that he gives us largeness of heart? Can, can we do that together today? Father, we thank you again for your word. Your word is living and active. Lord, 
cut into our hearts today. Lord, if surgery needs to be done, do surgery in our hearts today. Open up the eyes of our understanding and reveal your heart to us. Let us catch just a glimpse of your heart for nations and society and communities today. Lord, that we can partner with you to have your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's first take a look at David, okay? Take a look at David. I'm going to jump around in Scripture a little bit, so it's not necessarily in chronological order, but that's okay, right? Yeah? All right. Um, not that it mattered to you, so. <laughs> All right, so David. Let's, let's take a look at David. Um, he was quite an unusual character, okay? Actually, let me just first say, David is like a personal hero of mine in Scripture. I just, I, I love, not just because he was a musician, all that kind of stuff, but I just love how vulnerable David was before the Lord. Um, but David being an unusual character in the sense that on, on one hand, he's a warrior. He's a tough guy. He's not going to back down from a fight, right? If he's such a formidable adversary on the battlefield, if you cross paths or cross swords with David, you better, better hold on to your head, <laughs> take you out, Right? So that's David on one hand, but then on the other hand, he is this sincere, passionate lover and worshiper of God. Normally, you don't see both of these complete opposite ends of the spectrum married together in one, in one person. But as unusual as he was, David had a heart after God's heart. David valued the presence of God, which one of the most significant things that David did in his reign as king was to create a presence-oriented culture in the nation of Israel. Uh, As I said, David valued the presence of God because ultimately David discovered that God didn't want sacrifice or burnt offerings. He wanted a yielded heart. At that point, um, Israel had come, out of, uh, had come out of Egypt, and they were becoming a nation. And so God set up this, this order of, uh, of expressions of worship where they would uh, have animal sacrifices and burnt offerings and all those kinds of things, festivals, feasts, and certain rituals. And this, for hundreds of years, was the expression of worship in the nation of Israel. Um, and... David kind of switched gears a little bit. And interestingly, it, 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 uh, it violated the law that was set in place. So, for instance, one of the things, one of the most significant things that David did was he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, let, let's sidebar on this a little bit. I, I've, I've taught about the tabernacle of David and the Ark of the Covenant. For those of you who have heard me speak before, if you haven't, let me just kind of catch you up here a little bit. So the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, that was the very, that was the presence of God. Okay, so in Moses' time, they had the tabernacle of meeting, different from the tabernacle of David. But this is where they would do all the burnt offerings. This is where they had the inner courts of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And interestingly, nobody could go into the presence of God. You know why? Because you would die. The problem was sin. Okay, only one man could go in on one day of the year, the high priest on the day of atonement. And what he would do is he would offer burnt offerings and sacrifices 
uh, to atone for the sins of the entire nation. Okay? Um, it's important to recognize this too, because in that time, this atonement that the high priest did, it did not deal with sin. He did not deal with sin. He only delayed the penalty of sin, okay? Because who dealt with sin? Jesus, his blood dealt with sin. It's important to remember that distinction, okay? Because the Bible talks about for the wages of sin is death. So every time the high priest would go in and do, uh, make it uh, uh, atone for the sins of Israel, basically it was you know, pressing the reboot button so that way they could live for another year. Okay, in a nutshell. Uh, Who would like that job, huh? Yeah? Okay, so here we are. Uh, David does this thing where he actually brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he sets it up in a tent outside the walls of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Okay, and this is one of the rare occasions where the Bible doesn't really give us any description about the tabernacle. The, the tabernacle of David. It was just a tent. <laughs> we don't know how big, how wide, how, how tall, any of the measurements or anything like that. It's just literally a tent. And what David did was he put the Ark of the Covenant inside and he arranged and orchestrated his musicians to take shifts. They would take shifts on a daily basis and they would be offering uh, just song, just worship to the Lord, surrounding the presence of God with worship. Listen, this is 24-7, 365. Musicians just coming in and worshiping the Lord. You know, can you imagine the handoff, the trade-off, where you come in and you're playing guitar or playing keys or something like that, and one guitar leaves, one guitarist leaves, and the other comes in, and all right, and the song keeps going. <laughs> so there's, there's these shifts, a rotation that happens, and Nothing like this had ever been done before. And the reason why it was completely unprecedented was because it violated the law of Moses. But here's here's the interesting thing with David is that nobody died. It's like somehow God approved. God approved of that. In fact, God did value the tabernacle of David. And we know that because in the book of Amos, Amos being a prophet, um, many years after David's reign, um, Amos is speaking for the Lord, and God says this through, through Amos in uh, chapter 9, verse 11. God says, I will once again raise up the tabernacle of David that has been torn down. And then, interestingly, God says right after that, for Edom will then find the Lord. Edom is another way of saying, it's another term for saying mankind. All of mankind. So literally what God is saying is, it's this kind of worship, the tabernacle of David. I will raise this up again, God says. Because it's this kind of worship that will usher in the harvest of the nations. So David constructed a presence-oriented culture. You know, if you remember when the disciples were following Jesus and they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray like you pray. And he goes through the Lord's prayer, you know, uh, uh, hallowed be thy name. And then he says this one part where uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
You know, there's this apostolic mandate when we pray that kind of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because what is the greatest reality in heaven? It's the presence of God. The presence of God is the greatest reality in heaven. So essentially, I mean, if you think about it, the description of heaven is essentially that God's presence permeates everything, saturates everything. There's no shadow. There's no darkness in heaven because God's glory illuminates everything, right? So essentially, when we're praying that prayer, we are praying the greatest reality in heaven, let that be like it is here on earth. You know, when we, when we pray that, that reality has to affect how we do life here on earth. And, you know, I don't, I don't think our message is, you know, going to family members, going to neighbors, or going to your boss at work, or going to friends or anything like that and telling them how much they need to value the presence of God. I don't think that's the message. I think the message is essentially that we carry the presence of God. The message is permeation, illumination. Because when we carry the presence of God wherever we go, the atmosphere changes. So back to David. David has a temporary location for God's presence. It's the tabernacle. But he had it in his heart to build a permanent location, the temple. What we know today is Solomon's temple. So here's David. He pulls together some elders and some of the prophets, and he says, hey, I have a house, but God has a tent. I want to build a house for the Lord. And they all agree, like, go for it. Do what's in your heart. The Lord is with you. And they all walk away, and David's excited. But then God speaks to Nathan, the prophet, And Nathan comes back to David and says, hey, whoa, whoa, hold your horses, bucko. And he says, God has told, God has said what's in your heart is a good thing, but you are not the one to build it. David, you are not the one to build it. Okay? And it's interesting because in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, the reason for why God didn't want David to build this temple was because David was a man of bloodshed, of war, okay? And let's, let me just give a little bit of context here. Up until David's time, Israel had not taken full possession of the promised land, okay? They came out of Egypt, the Exodus. Joshua led them on the military campaign to conquer the promised land. They, made, they got so far, but they didn't take it all the way. Okay, so they didn't, they failed to uh, take possession during Joshua's time. Even through the book of Judges, all the various judges that came along, they still failed to take possession, full possession of the promised land. Samuel, being the prophet who anointed David, but before David, he anointed Saul. Um, Samuel anointed Saul to be king even during Saul's reign. They did not take full possession of the promised land until David. In fact, the first seven years of David's reign was pretty bloody. It was kind of a mess, all right? But he achieved his divine assignment to take full possession of the promised land uh, for the nation of Israel. So back to, you know, 
David wanting to build the temple. I'm pondering about that, and God says, no, David, you can't build it because you're a man of war and a man of bloodshed. But then it's, wait a second, but God, you're the one who told David to go and and do all this. I used to think it was a punishment on David that he couldn't build a temple. But then coming into understanding that, I was like, well, if it's not punishment, which I've concluded that it's not, uh, what is it? And this is where I want to bring our attention to, I see David's life and Solomon's life as prophetic blueprints and templates for ministry, prototypes for ministry today. So what was God saying when he told David no? God was saying that what he wants to build, what God wants to build cannot be built on bloodshed ministry. Okay? Let me explain it this way. David's life resembled Old Testament. Solomon's life resembled New Testament, prophetically speaking to us today. So we talked about it earlier, Old Testament worship. What did it focus on? Animal sacrifices, burnt offerings, right? It focused on the problem, the severity of sin. Didn't really offer any solutions, right? It was just blood, mess. But New Testament worship, New Testament worship brings the solution to the problem because it's centered on the presence. Remember when Jesus is on the cross and those three lovely words that he said, it is finished. At that very moment, you have the earthquake that happens, but also what happened in the temple was the very curtain that separated the presence of God from the people was rendered from top to bottom. Because Jesus' blood dealt with what? The problem dealt with the sin problem once and for all, one and done. Now the presence of God is accessible and available to all of us. In the Old Testament, think of it this way. In the Old Testament, evil contaminates. In other words, don't touch a leper Otherwise, you will become unclean. But in the New Testament, Jesus touches the leper, and the leper is made clean. David recognized something in the presence of the Lord that he valued so much, what in fact was reserved for after the cross. David discovered that and he pulled that into his own time and God approved of it. God approved of it. It was a presence-oriented culture and it created momentum for when Solomon came along to take the baton to be king over the next generation of the nation of Israel. So let's talk about Solomon a little bit. First off, his name means peaceable. And he became king after David. And he inherited, <clears throat> he inherited uh, this presence-oriented culture. Now, remember, 
that this worship that's happening at the tabernacle of David, mind you, this, this went on for like 30 years, probably a little bit more, so 30 plus years of a constant sound of worship going up to the Lord. Can you imagine that? Like, you wake up in the morning and you hear singing to the Lord. You're brushing your teeth, you're getting ready for work, eating breakfast, and you're hearing. You go to work and you hear constant worship going up to the Lord. You come home for dinner at night and you're hearing constant worship unto the Lord. You go to sleep at night and you're hearing constant worship to the Lord. When the judges and they would make decisions for the nation, when they would meet in the courts, what are they, what are they making their national decisions along with? A constant sound of worship. I wonder what kind of decisions were made. It's no, I don't think it's any coincidence that many historians and many scholars refer to the time of David's reign through Solomon's reign as the golden age or the golden era in the nation of Israel. I don't think it's any coincidence the fact that there was a constant sound of worship going up. Okay? So remember, I want, basically I want us to remember that this wasn't just a Sunday thing. This wasn't just a church thing. This was part of everyday life in Israel. This was part of the city structure, grafted in to the city structure, not just a church thing. So Solomon was given the task of building the temple. Okay, so obviously here we are. We're going to read in 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, we'll pick it up there if you want to turn there. But uh, David has basically, he received the answer from God, no, you're not going to build the temple, but Solomon, your son, will build it after you. So David begins to prepare Solomon, prepares all the materials. David dies. Solomon becomes king. And Solomon builds the temple. Okay? And uh, we're going to pick it up here in 1 Kings chapter 8, where the ark, which was located in the tabernacle of David, is now brought to the temple. The temple has been completed, it's finished, and we're in this place where Solomon, they're having a, uh, they're consecrating the temple, having a service for consecrating the temple, okay? So 1 Kings 8, verse 1, says this, Now Solomon assembled the leaders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. Then they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered from, for multitude. Uh, let me just kind of bring our attention to a couple of things in here. Uh, verse 4, it talked about how the priests carried the ark. Why didn't they just put it on a cart or something like that? Because David already made that mistake when he originally went to go bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to put inside the tabernacle, the tabernacle of David, um, he put it on a cart. And if you remember the story, 
they're traveling, there's music happening, and everybody's rejoicing, and then the oxen stumble, the oxen pulling the cart, the oxen stumble. There's a dude by the name of Uzzah who comes along to stabilize the ark because it faltered, and he touched the ark, died instantly, okay? Remember, around the presence of God, you, you just don't nonchalantly or cavalier with a cavalier manner engage or address the presence of God because you would die, okay? So David already made this mistake. Of course, he finds out three months later that it's the priests who are to carry the ark of the covenant, the presence of God. If you remember back in the time with Joshua when they were crossing the river Jordan and the river is rushing, it's flooded at that time and the priests walk in carrying the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, carrying the ark into the river and it secedes. It stops flooding, okay? The point I'm I'm making here is God's presence was always meant to be carried by his people, by the priests. Not by man-made vessels, but by his priests. And I love how, for, I love how Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9 where he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. God's presence was always meant to be carried by you and me not just because you went to seminary or Bible school or got a PhD or anything like that. If you said yes to Jesus, you carry him. Amen. Amen. Also, verse 5. It's interesting here that it talks about how they were offering sacrifices. Um. That could not be counted. It was a huge number. I think in Chronicles it talks about like 1,200 or like, was it 1,200 sheep and like 20,000, 22,000 bull oxen that they sacrificed? It was an outrageous number, okay? But they're offering sacrifices. The other thing that's always connected to the presence of God is sacrifice. Of course, we're on this side of the cross, okay? So we're not doing animal sacrifices or burnt, sa- or burnt offerings anymore. But that doesn't mean that there isn't sacrifice. When you're in the presence, if you're in the presence of God and you don't bring an offering, then I don't think you really recognize the presence of God. Now, let me, let me clarify that because I'm not talking about your wallets, <laughs> okay? Don't, don't dumb this down to just mean money. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an automatic response of worship that comes when you are in the presence. Think of it like this, Isaiah chapter 6, okay? Isaiah has this vision. He's in the throne room with God, and he's describing all of this that's happening to where his train filled the temple, and he is high and lifted up. And even Isaiah in that moment was so overwhelmed, he even said things like, oh, woe is me, woe is me. And then there's this moment where God begins to speak, and God says, Who am I going to send to my people? In other words, who's going to be my prophet that I can speak through? And Isaiah says, send me. 
send me. We are living sacrifices. Offering sacrifice is always an automatic response when it comes to the presence and the glory of God. If you see the glory of God, if you are in the presence of God and you don't become a living sacrifice, then I question what you see. Amen, Ryan. That's a good point. Good job. First Kings 8, let's jump back into it. First Kings 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What's, what's the cloud? What's the cloud? Okay, if you remember exactly, it's presence. If you remember back in the wilderness in the time of Moses when they were wandering for 40 years, it was a cloud by day that led them and a pillar of fire by night, the presence of God. And I love even here that the priests were fulfilling their duties as priests, but then the presence of God came in to where they had to stop. The presence was so thick, they couldn't, they couldn't keep going. And it was that response of worship to where they just stopped doing what they were doing. You know, it's interesting here because it doesn't even say anything along the lines of, and somebody, somebody rose up and said, I perceive that the presence of the Lord is here. Let us bow and worship. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. They just knew. When you're in the presence of God, you just know. And you become that living sacrifice and you offer yourself. The reason why I'm, I'm kind of bringing our attention to this is because this is all setting a prophetic pattern. A prophetic pattern for what's, what's going to happen in the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations. And the point of it is, too, is that if the presence of God doesn't become a practical reality in our lives, our families, our homes, our occupations, then we have no business as using it as a template to transform a city. Amen. First Kings chapter 4, verse 20 says this, and Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. There's another part in that passage where it says that they had peace on all sides, that they had no adversary. They had no adversary. They were living in the full promises of God's covenant. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 34, we read this earlier. It says, And men of all nations from the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of of Solomon. Actually, the Bible also talks about the Queen of Sheba and kind of gives in detail a little bit more about what the Queen of Sheba, she had, okay, so the Queen, she had all the questions. <laughs> she had all the questions, right? So she comes to Solomon to inquire. She heard about his wisdom, heard about what was going on. So she came, and it says that every question that she asked, nothing was too hard for Solomon to answer. 
But it wasn't just about Solomon's wisdom. She observed many other things as well. She observed the entryways of his palace, the, uh, the entryways, the, the ornate decorations of his gardens, of the temple. I think in, in dollar amounts, I think the temple costs somewhere upwards of $500 billion in our day's money, okay? And it didn't, like Solomon didn't even tap into his own treasury, the king's treasury for that. It says that even at that time that they stacked up silver on the streets because it was counted as nothing. It was worthless. Momentum. Transformation. Another thing that the Queen of Sheba talked about was how she noticed how Solomon's servants were dressed. And she said something along the lines of, a servant in Solomon's house is better off than a king of a nation elsewhere. A servant. A servant. Anyhow, the main point of it all is that what, ha- what was happening in the nation of Israel was, in my opinion, the kingdom of heaven on earth in a city structure. Not only did it impact the nation of Israel, but it attracted other nations as well. Not to the point of, oh, they're the superpower now, we have to destroy them. No, there was something so attractive about what God was, about what was happening in the nation of Israel that the other nations didn't want to destroy it. They wanted a piece of it. They're the ones who came to Solomon, what is it that you got? Because I want a piece of that. What would it be like when you show up to work and fellow employees or clients or your boss comes to you and says, what is it about you? Because when you walk in the room, why do I feel the atmosphere change? Why do I feel safe? Huh? Where does transformation start? So here we are. Let me bring it back around. We'll start closing things out. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3 says this, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Solomon started off well, but he didn't end well, unfortunately. What were the high places? The high places were a, 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 a pagan expression of worship, uh, the nations of that time um, did this with their gods. It was basically a logical, um, a logical way to reach the divinity that you were worshiping. They would go up to higher places to worship because they could be closer. Um, the, the problem with that is, first and foremost, God told Israel, yeah, don't do that. Um, so right then and there, it's like, you just don't do that. Um, so Solomon disobeyed God in that aspect. But the other part of it is too, and this is a little bit more subtle, um, is that worshiping at the high places introduced a, a self-will into worship, a self-will in worship. When you introduce a self-will, your own will, into worship, it's no longer your kingdom come and your will be done anymore, is it? 
It's no longer a yielded heart or a surrendered heart, is it? And uh, over the course of time, this small crack in the foundation of Solomon's worship, over the course of time as the nation grew, as Solomon became more wise and as things progressed, it eventually led to the crumbling of a heaven-on-earth city structure. And also it influenced a king who loved the Lord to turn his heart away from the Lord. David, David was a man of the presence. Solomon became a man of principle. But I think Solomon was supposed to become a man of principled presence. Paul said it like this. He's talking in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul said, uh, he's talking about knowledge and love. And he says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. And he's not talking about secular knowledge as to distinguish between spiritual and secular knowledge or carnal knowledge. It's just knowledge, any kind of knowledge. Okay? And so Paul, the context of it is that knowledge makes you proud. So is there any kind of knowledge that doesn't make you proud? Yes, there is. It's the kind of knowledge that comes with a divine encounter. You really don't know how, God, how big God is until you realize how insignificant and small you are without him. I mean, think of it like this. You know, Paul is on the road to Damascus riding on his donkey, and then he has this encounter with Jesus, the light, and Jesus basically knocks him off his donkey, right? And Paul becomes blind from that encounter. Jesus speaks with him. And, you know, Paul doesn't come, walk out of that scenario. He doesn't come away from that strutting, saying, oh, wow, what a great encounter. Just wait till you see all the books I'm about to write. <laughs> no. <laughs> he walks away from that with his tail between his legs, the servant of all, the one who is delightfully embracing the fact that he's going to be persecuted and beaten for the one that he just saw. You know, Scripture says in that God showed up to Solomon two times. It's like God put a little asterisk next to that saying, yeah, Solomon, he's the one who I showed up to twice. I don't know of anywhere else or anybody else that that is said about. But somehow, in some way, Solomon went the other way. It impacted his worship. Let's conclude with this. First Kings 8. This will all make sense. I'm going to wrap it up right here. So First Kings chapter 8. We're going to read verses 14 through 18, and it says this. This is Solomon talking to the nation of Israel. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. You know what, let me just stop there for a sec. 
God didn't choose a city in which to build a house. God chose David. Let let me say it like this. It's like God was saying, I didn't desire the temple. I didn't want that. What I wanted was the man. And look what I found in the heart of the man. Look what I found in the heart of the man. Because with David, vowing the presence of God so much, he wanted to give God the best. Desires are formed. Desires are formed in us. Dreams are formed in us according to who or even what we fellowship with. The question is not whether my desires or my dreams are from God or not. The question is, who am I communing with? Who am I fellowshipping with? Our walk with Jesus is a partnership to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth. Each and every one of us have divine assignments in our lives to fulfill a God designed destiny that's very specific for the time that we live in right now. But you know, there's something that God desires much more. And that is what I believe to be just a tender walk with him. Jesus said it like this, In John chapter 15, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. The Passion Passion Translation, listen to this. It says, I have never called you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants. And servants don't always understand what the master is doing. But I call you my most intimate And cherish friends. For I reveal to you everything that I've heard from my Father. You know, the church has done well with saying yes to to discipleship and obedience, and rightly so, rightly so. But I also think the church hasn't done well with becoming tender before the Lord to allow him to breathe life into thoughts and dreams that were birthed out of fellowship. Now, let's get one thing straight. Servant or friend, obedience never disappears. It's always there. And it's important to recognize that we need both. But let me add this. Here we have in John 15 an invitation from Jesus to approach him differently because a friend values the relationship differently. Right? As I said, we've rightly done well to say yes to obedience and discipleship as servants of the Lord. But oftentimes with believers, there are thoughts and dreams that come simply because we're spending time with the Lord, we're fellowshipping, communing with the Lord, and we quickly abort those dreams all in the name of discipleship. We crucify the, resu- the resurrected man and we call it discipleship instead of allowing the mind of Christ to come forward 
for us to be free to, to, to think again, to, to be free to dream, to be uh, free to pursue. It all becomes squelched, all in the name, and it becomes, it becomes religion, which is a counterfeit of the real thing, Right? Nations, society, cities. They are crying out for believers to dream again. And it's not because you have all the answers to the problems. It's not because you have all the solutions to the dilemmas. It's because you have a direct line to the one who does. We dream because of him, not independent of him. Amen. So Solomon inherited a presence oriented culture. From that culture there came secrets and hidden solutions that changed a nation and impacted the whole world. But where did it begin? It began in the heart of his dad who valued the presence of God above everything else. Can I finish with, a qu- finish with a rhetorical question? What secrets and hidden solutions will be discovered in your hearts when you choose to value the presence of God above everything else? That's where transformation begins. Can we stand? I just want to pray real quick. I love you guys. I love this church. I love what God is doing. Let's remember what God is doing in each and every one of us. It's not to die with us. It's to create momentum for the next generation. There are solutions in you because you carry the one. You carry the one. Lord, I thank you for your love in our lives. Lord, bring that largeness of heart to each and every one of us. Let our eyes see what you see. Let our ears hear what you hear. Let our mouths speak what you speak. Let our thoughts be your thoughts, Lord. Let the mind of Christ come forward. I thank you, Lord, that as we continue to press into you, to seek and pursue you, your presence above everything else, Lord, that there will be divine encounters, divine appointments, divine solutions that come simply because of your heart for all mankind to come to the knowledge of the truth. Whatever way, shape, or form, Lord, our prayer is simply this. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you all. Tonight, 6 o'clock, adult Bible study. Everybody else, meet us at the beach. We'll see you. Have a good day.